Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. Caroline Stephen, financial journalist, Mount Everest. At nearly nine vertical kilometers into the Earth's atmosphere, it is the tallest mountain in the world. Most of us will never get a chance to climb it, but we can see it through the eyes of someone who has. Patrick Hollingworth is a mountaineer who was afraid of heights, but in 2010, he watched the sunrise from the rooftop of the world. Imagine crevasses so black they're effectively bottomless, then tying three ladders together to cross them. Imagine weaving under ice cliffs which are constantly moving and collapsing around you, and then standing in snow on a knife's ridge with three kilometre drops either side of you staring out at the Himalayas. Then imagine watching the sunrise from the highest place on earth. That's today's episode of Talking Trading. But first up, Louise Bedford has her own trading mountain to climb in mind power. And just like in Patrick's journey, how tiny steps get you to your trading summit. In Richard Dawkins' book called Climbing Mount Improbable, he presents a parable to help explain the concept of evolution. He suggests that the evolution from an amoeba to a fish took place in small incremental steps, one tiny step at a time. Each step in isolation assisted with the goal of survival, but gradually it morphed the creature into an animal with unique abilities. Now, taking this analogy to how you learn about the stock market, picture yourself at the base of a mountain. One side is a sheer cliff, jagged and impossible to climb. On the other side, it's a gentle slope, reaching all the way up to the summit. In our case, let's imagine that the summit represents investing success. When many investors start out, they try to take this massive leap up the sheer side of the cliff, only to fall over and damage their self-esteem as well as their trading bank balance. Rather than take the small, sometimes boring foundation steps to reach trading success up the gentle slope, they hurl themselves upwards. They use 25 out of 24 hours a day to learn about the markets. They take out a second mortgage on their house and throw themselves into the pointy end of FX trading. Where are you on your investing journey? Are you at the beginning? Have you already started to climb the mountain? Are you the type of person who has tried to take that big vertical leap? Or are you willing to gradually but persistently pursue your goal? 
I suggest you take the baby steps needed to help you climb the mountain. Sure, it's not as explosive as trying to take a huge vertical leap, but it's the only way every successful trading investor has learned their skill. Louise Bedford here. I'll be at Michael Yardney's Wealth Retreat for five days starting June 3rd. Join Australia's best property, tax, business, finance and share market minds on the Gold Coast. Fill out your expression of interest at tradinggame.com.au tradinggame.com.au Mount Everest. At 8,848 metres above sea level, it is the tallest mountain in the world. In 2010, Patrick Hollingworth climbed to the summit and lived to tell the tale. This is part one of his interview today on Talking Trading, where we hear about his climb and the dangers he endured on his way to the top. Mountaineer Patrick Hollingsworth, hello and welcome to Talking Trading. Hi, Caroline. Patrick, how did you become a mountaineer? Um, well, it started about two decades ago, and like most Australian mountaineers, um, I learned how to climb in the Alps of New Zealand, where they've got some beautiful and, and very big and dangerous mountains, and um, I got pretty addicted, and it all kind of it all stemmed from there, really. Now, you're a mountaineer who's afraid of heights. How does that work? <laughs> Yeah, pretty, pretty. It's quite difficult. <laughs> I was always kind of um, drawn to the mountain environment. I always found it really appealing, and I, whenever I see a mountain, I can't not look at it and wonder, oh, well, you know, I wonder what the best way to get up to the top is. And so I sort of romanticised about it for many years, and then when I started doing it, I was hit with this, yeah, incredibly uncomfortable truth, which was that, yeah, I'm terrified of heights. So a bit of a bit of an impediment. Um, Initially, I was, you know, I didn't recognise the mountain environment around me. I only just saw danger absolutely everywhere. And Where so were like, you when this happened? So this was on a mountain um, just to the north of Mount Cook in the South Island of, of New Zealand. And when you, you know, when you're introduced to an environment that is foreign to you, you don't really understand the true risks there. And so my natural response was just to be completely overwhelmed um, by fear. So how did you overcome it? Um. Only by returning time and time again, you know, the, the initial sort of response for most people would be, oh, well, you have to, you have to overcome your fear. Um, you, have to, you have to manage that fear. But what I learned was that rather than, you know, you still need to manage the fear, but more important than that, if you get to understand an environment in a much deeper way, you then become much better at actually identifying the true um, risk, so the true dangers and the true upside potential. And then you can differentiate much easier. And so you, you can then analyze that environment around you um, from a, a slightly less emotional kind of perspective. In 2006, you started working towards your goal of climbing Mount Everest. But on an expedition there, you suffered altitude sickness. What happened? Yeah, at an altitude of about 6,000 metres on a mountain um, further down the valley from Everest, I suffered high altitude pulmonary edema which is where due to the low levels of oxygen and atmospheric pressure, fluid leaks into your bodily cells. And in my instance, it leaked into my lungs. It can kill you, you know. And so six kilometres above the ocean surface and you're effectively drowning in your own bodily fluid. So it's pretty horrible. You become incredibly fatigued. And this disease uh, kills you very, very quickly. So I basically had collapsed at 
at 6,000 metres in altitude. Now, back then, um, helicopters couldn't fly that high. They can today, but um, back then they couldn't due to the, the low air pressure. The rotors can't get any purchase in, in the thin air. Um, so it was a pretty bad position to be in, but fortunately two of my um, two of my team were able to help me get back down the mountain and basically save my life. So I was pretty lucky there. It so, wasn't a very pleasant experience. <laughs> it sounds horrendous. And they had to put you in a pressurized bag. Yeah, it's called a Gamov bag, um, named after the Russian inventor. And it's a sealed tube and you lie inside that tube. And then somebody outside um, has got a foot pump and that's connected to the sealed tube. So they blow air into the bag which increases pressure inside the bag because it's sealed. And so that increased pressure simulates what it's like at a low altitude. So it drops you by about 2,000 metres or so. Except when I was in there, the guy doing the foot pump wasn't pumping it fast enough. And so we're getting a carbon dioxide build up in the bag. And I started suffocating. It was, yeah, it was really, really unpleasant. Okay, let's crack on to the big one. May 17, 2010, you stood on the rooftop of the world at 8,850 metres. Everest stands almost nine vertical kilometres up into the Earth's surface. Patrick, yeah. take us on that journey. Yeah, it's a long way up. At the top, on the summit of Everest, you've only got 25% the amount of oxygen that there is at sea level. So it's pretty, it's pretty wild up there. But, um, yeah, climb of Everest is pretty full on. You work towards it for a long time. These days, a lot of people climbing on the mountain um, in com- large commercial expeditions. And so it's actually quite crowded. So when I turned up to Everest in 2010, I was just climbing with four of my mates, four of my Sherpa mates. We um, were surprised at how many other large expeditions were there. I think they were in excess of 30. Um, you spend a lot of time acclimatizing on the mountain. So during that acclimatization process, you're gradually climbing higher. And then you drop back down to base camp and rest. And then the next little um, sprint on the mountain, you go a little bit higher still. And then what you're trying to do is you're trying to increase the red blood cell count in your body to improve improve your acclimatization because of the low levels of oxygen. So over time, your red um, blood cell count increases. And that's what that acclimatization process does. So traditional approaches to mountaineering in Himalayas are very slow. And that's why you're on the mountain for up to two months at a time. The final summit push itself we did in the space of about six days or so. The highest camp on the mountain where you launch your final summit push from is at an altitude of about 8,000 metres. So it's pretty wild up there. You know, you can see the curvature from the earth and, um, yeah, it's amazing. The final summit push, we left our high camp at about 9pm in the evening. So you climb through the night um, and that gives you enough time to continue climbing into the next day to hopefully get to the summit and then make it back down before the onset of the second night. Um, so you're, you're on the move for a, for a long, long time. We, we summited at about, um, at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, so taken us 13 hours to get up there, which is incredibly slow. It was a very, very busy day that day, which is not what most people expect, but that's the reality of Everest today. It's very, very crowded with commercial expeditions and normally comprised of, of believe it or not, novice climbers people who are paying big dollars to be there but don't necessarily have that skill set. I want to go that direction in a minute, but first I just want to get the atmosphere because unfortunately we don't have your amazing slides for this audio interview. But the crevices that you crossed, the ice that you had to traverse, the loatsy fa- the, the images were just haunting, haunting to me. Can you describe when you got to the summit, what sort of things you'd had to overcome to get there? 
on Everest, everything is on just a much larger scale than pretty much, yeah, well, than any other mountain around the world. Everything is just really, really big. Um, the most difficult and dangerous part of the climb is the first part of the climb between base camp and camp one. It's through a glacier. Uh, it's known as the ice fall, and it's a very, very steep glacier, which is essentially collapsing down a valley, and it's the traditional approach. It's the approach that Sir Ed and Tenzing Norgay first took in 1953, so um, a route is put through there, but there's lots of crevasses to cross over. So a lot of these crevasses are gaps which are black, so they're effectively bottomless. And in some instances, we're using up to three ladders tied end-to-end to get over them. Oh. So it's, it's pretty horrifying. And then you're kind of weaving underneath all of these ice cliffs which are constantly moving and collapsing around you. So every time you pass through the ice fall, the route has changed. And so it's actually the most dangerous part of, of the route. Um, so it's it's not a particularly pleasant experience climbing through there because you feel that more than at any other time in the, on the mountain, you are completely out of control. You don't have any control over that environment around you. And so speed is really a friend as you move through that part. Before the ice uh, melts. Exactly. And so we generally climb we generally climb in the darkness when it's in the cover of darkness when it's colder, which in theory makes it more stable. But over the past decade or so, the ice fall has tended to prove more unstable in the Himalayas in general because you're seeing a lot of climate instability probably probably from from climate change do you have um, do you have nightmares about crevasses um I don't have no I have had nightmares in the past about generally climbing and about falling never specifically about crevasses but I do remember one time being up at the top of the Tasman glacier in New Zealand as we were descending down the glacier and in the upper parts of glaciers, sometimes you have crevasses which are covered over. So they have a thin veneer of ice over them, but underneath they're still just massive crevasses. And you can actually step through that veneer and fall into them. And it's horrible because you feel like you're walking on a minefield and you never know when your neck's going to fall into a crevasse. <laughs> oh it's, it's, it's not, yeah, it's a bit horrible. <laughs> okay, so that's the first part of climbing Everest. Take us on the second part of climbing Everest. So then the next two legs between Camp 1 and Camp 2, and between Camp 1 and Camp 2 is very, very straightforward, non-technical terrain whatsoever, Um, and you're moving up this big valley. It's called the Western Coombe. Coombe is a Welsh word for meaning valley. Um, So that's pretty straightforward, um, but it's only once you get up to Camp 2 and then move on to Camp 3, which is when you start climbing the Lhotse face. Now, so Lhotse is the fourth highest mountain on Earth, and that's right next to Everest. So you actually have to divert out and climb most of Lhotse, and halfway up the Lhotse face is where you put your third camp, and that's on a very steep um, icy mountain face, so it's pretty unforgiving. Um, It's about like a 1,000-metre drop straight down. So, for example, when you're in Camp 3, you always stay tied into your rope, you know, like a bunch of people have been killed when they've gotten up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet and they've literally slipped and fallen to their death. So that's a pretty kind of exposed campsite. And then from there, you continue up the Lhotse face and you top out onto the South Col, which is where Camp 4 is, and then mm-hmm. you launch your final summit push. The most, the, the best, the most enjoyable part of the climbing is above Camp 4 because that's when you break out onto the summit ridge and, you know, you've got drops of about three kilometres on either side of the ridge and you're literally looking down on the rest of the world. And it's quite an amazing, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful sight to behold. And to watch the sun rise from, from that altitude is, it's, 
it's a spiritual moment, I think you could describe it as. It's stunningly beautiful, yeah. And there was a time where you saw a light turn on and it was a Tibetan farmer and he thought... Yeah, I remember thinking, wow, you know, I could see somebody, presumably they were getting up, you know, for their day's work and in Tibet. And I remember thinking, that would have been at least four kilometres below me and thinking, wow, isn't that crazy? But I almost felt like I could touch out, could almost reach out and touch them. It was such a strange feeling and i just felt it sounds really weird but i felt very connected to fellow humans at that point in time just from witnessing this amazing beauty and thinking wow we live in such on such a stunningly beautiful earth and what a privilege it was to be able to see that and that's essentially why i climb mountains i think well that's one of the reasons why to see that kind of view that's very special yeah and you feel more connected to humanity when you're all eight kilometres yeah. up in the air. How funny. Paradoxically, more more remote from them than ever before. Yeah. All right. So take us through the Hillary Step. So the Hillary Step is a – it's the last sort of technical piece of climbing. And so by technical, we mean like, it, you know, it's, it's strenuous and, and you need to actually climb as opposed to kind of walk. Um, it's a rock step, a vertical rock step, which is about maybe it's, it's somewhere between – it's probably about 10 metres high because that final summit ridge of Everest is pretty much a straightforward knife-edge snow ridge, but then halfway along is where the Hillary step pops up and it, it intercepts the ridge. And so you have to kind of scale your way up it. But as you do, you've got these three-kilometre drops. And so at one point in time, you, you mantle out onto one side of the Hillary step and you can literally see three kilometres down <gasps> beneath your toes. It's pretty wild. <laughs> and so the interesting thing is, it, and, I mean, these days there's fixed rope there. So there's rope that's been left up there by previous expeditions or by a team of Sherpas who have first climbed the route that season. But, you know, when you think about the early years of mountaineering and, you know, when Ed and Tenzing led that pitch, um, just amazing how brave they were to to go about that technical rock climbing at such an extreme altitude because, at, you know, nearly 9,000 metres, it's so different to climbing at sea level. Yeah, so let's talk about that with the oxygen levels and how it slows you down. You said the yeah. Hillary step, you'd, you'd scamper over it in 30 seconds at sea level, yeah, but up there it's, it's half an hour. It, yeah, everything just becomes slowed down because of that that lack of oxygen. And so we're using bottled oxygen, so that um, makes it a bit safer, but not a whole lot easier. So, yeah, everything becomes slowed down. So above 8,000 metres, I can normally get about four to six steps out of me before I'm totally spent <laughs> and then rest and then, you know, we'll take another four steps. But it's just amazing. when you're When you're sitting down and not active, you don't notice it so much. But the moment you have to get up and do anything, even if it be tying your shoelace together, it you really, really notice it, and everything becomes a real struggle. Okay. And it's hard to it's hard to kind of imagine it. Um, I guess if you started breathing into a paper bag, you might get a bit of a feeling for what it's like. So you're at the Hillary Step. You've crossed it. Now you're making your way to the summit. What are your yeah. feelings when you get there? Initially, um, probably not what you'd expect. One of mild disappointment <laughs> um there were 24 other people on the summit at the same time <laughs> and i guess that's the reality of of everest these days so climbing in a small team we had we had hoped to be the first team up there for the season but we hadn't got the weather window we'd hoped for and so uh, we had to sit in base camp once we'd done all, all of our acclimatization we had to sit in base camp for about two weeks 
And so a whole bunch of other larger commercial teams kind of um, caught up to our schedule. And so on that particular day, it was really the first good weather day of the season. Um, and I think the, in 2010, there were only six weather days. Yeah, there's a real pent-up demand, I guess, um, and, and limited supply of, of weather days. So, yeah, it, I guess in my sort of dreams about climbing Everest, it wasn't that I'd have to – not have to share it with other people, but it's just the reality of what it was. You know, a few minutes later, I didn't really care. More than anything, I think I was really just keen to get down. Um, I did make a, a couple of phone calls, and I remember calling my mum and dad, um, and that was great to talk to them in, in the childhood home that I'd grown up in from the summit of Everest. That was a very special call. They'd been with me along with the whole journey, so they knew what, what it had involved. Is yeah. this pressure to get down the mountain before the clouds come over, a feeling that your life depends on getting out of this place quickly? Yeah, there's this sense of immense exposure. 85% of mountaineering accidents happen on the descent, so people become fatigued. Um, and people become so um, focused on the goal of getting to the summit that they expend all their energy getting there and then kind of forget it's actually just as hard to get down. And we got caught in a storm and it was a whiteout. Um, it wasn't really particularly windy, but just not being able to see where you're going is quite difficult. And, yeah, you you know, you just your body packs it in and then mentally your brain starts packing in and, and it it gets pretty loose up there, you know. Um, it, it gets pretty wild. Um, At any stage, are you afraid of losing your life? Yeah, I'm not afraid. I just on one point in time, I was so tired. I remember saying to my buddy Lakpa, oh, I'm done. You know, you just keep going. <laughs> you know, see you later kind of thing. And he's like, don't be stupid. Get up. Keep moving. Um, but you're just so you're so you're fatigued beyond com- comprehension that you can understand why people do just give up and just sit down and go to sleep and then never wake up again because it's just too hard not only to summon the energy but you just literally don't have any energy left. What temperatures are we talking about on the summit? Um, I reckon it was about somewhere between minus twenty, minus thirty. Mm. So it gets pretty pretty cold up there. Um, I mean, Everest is a very very cold mountain. Um, it's, it wasn't a you know it can certainly get a lot colder, but fortunately when the cloud moved in, that kind of kept temperatures from going too cold on the way down. That's all for today, guys. Stay tuned next week to hear part two of Patrick Hollingworth's journey to the summit. I'm Caroline Stephen. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to TalkingTrading.com.au with Caroline Stephen. Make sure you are subscribed to this website to receive the very latest market views, commentary and expert opinion. Tune in next week as we've got a bumper show planned. Bye for now. The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regard to your own situation.